0: Um, Next up is Yaku and Carl, Um, they're going to talk on SCR optimization under Sam. Yaku is a director with Deloitte and heads up the short-term actuarial practice area. He has over 11 years of actuarial consulting experience and is the appointed actuary to a number of short-term insurers, both locally and abroad. Yaku's clients include traditional insurers as well as niche and specialist insurers, reinsurers, agents and quasi-insurance funds. He often also gets involved in non traditional assignments where he has the opportunity to put his actual training to use. He serves on the Short Term Insurance Committee of ASA and a number of F- FSB SAM task groups. Carl is a senior manager with Deloitte within the Short Term Insurance Practice area. He has over eight years of consulting experience focusing on risk and capital management across a variety of insurers and a few banks. <coughs> Carl's involvement has been across a broad range of activities at insurers, including capital model development and validation, valuation, SAM implementation, ORSER development, as well as balance sheet optimization and reinsurance optimization. He serves on the short-term insurance committee of ASA and supports a few FSB SAM task groups and ASA education subcommittees. Welcome.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for the opportunity to speak to you this morning. Um, Carl and I would like to share some of our insights and our experience with you specifically around capital in a SAM environment. Um, uh, We've done a lot of work across a varying range of insurers um, and we've done some research at the same time in the background and we've seen a few interesting things around the use of the SAM standard formula as a determinant of capital and actual getting real meaningful value out of that. So, um, you know, we'd like to take the opportunity today to highlight the difference between complying and getting your SAM compliance right, and actually taking that capital number that comes out of the SAM SCR framework or formula, and actually making it work for your business, and actually identifying how it can improve and optimise your position. So. You know, I think firstly it's important to realize that today our talk is primarily focused on the standard formula um, as an approach for determining your risk based capital. Um, but really what we find insurers have been focusing on and even now are doing is really a compliance driven approach to working with capital. It's the whole process of getting themselves over the line, making sure they're able to execute against the regulatory requirements. Um, and slowly but surely, moving to a point where they actually understand and interpret, and actually can use those numbers more intelligently. What they would like to think and what they like to hope is that these numbers actually take them to the point where they are real, optimised, you know, institutions that are financially lean and mean and have a slick approach on capital. And you find that as you go through a SAM process, you know, you start working out your gaps. You start planning your SAM readiness and your implementation, going through the first quiz voluntary exercise, eventually doing a mandatory quiz exercise, complying with board notice 158, um, and then more recently, the flurry in the industry which meant I didn't get much sleep during August is that of the ORSA, is getting yourself to the point where you're actually step by step just making sure you're tracking and complying with what the regulator wants. And the, regu- and, and the insurers themselves have felt that this has shed light and certainly they've started to understand what the numbers mean more and more for example going through a ser calculation discussing it with the board as part of an also highlights maybe where your investment strategy isn't exactly great where it's attracting capital and making you um, give up points on your solvency Um, Similarly, when it comes to reinsurance, I've seen insurers actually at the stage of renewal start producing numbers and and starting to look at the quality of their reinsurance panel in terms of the credit ratings. So these are all good things and they're adding value, but does that actually take you to the point of being properly optimized in terms of your capital? And I think the the reality of it is it, it doesn't. It adds value and it gets you forward in time and it casts your mind into a risk focused or a risk cognizant space but that's a big difference from being optimized and I think it's important first before we go into this further to so I just clarify essentially what the approach that we've taken in terms of talking you know when we define being optimized so on the one hand you've got your solvency your capital requirements the extent to which you meet them in the solvency and clearly you want this to be as good as possible you want to maximize that but on the other hand you want return we will want to make profits and we want to specifically be maximizing our economic value or our risk adjusted profits now the former one the in the solvency it has been a natural consequence of going through this com- process of compliance getting your numbers right it is part of it is what comes out of the exercise and um, and the journey um, but not necessarily entirely. On the other hand, the idea of economic, capital, uh, economic value and economic profit um, relies heavily on the use of risk-adjusted return metrics. And when we talk about being optimized, we have to bear these two opposing concepts in mind. We essentially want to have our cake um, and eat as much of it at the same time as possible. So find that sweet spot. So as I said, most insurers are grappling um, with the phase of compliance. So they're sitting just trying to get themselves over that that regulatory line. Um, There are some insurers who've started identifying where they can actually use these processes, whether it's reinsurance, whether it's your investments, um, actually starting to identify initiatives that they're starting to roll out to improve um, the business. And then there are very few, not too many insurers who've actually managed to implement some real change in the business. Actually to put processes in place, uh, be it, for example, um, at the investment committee levels where investment decisions are made, to actually embed this properly in the business. And to a large extent, no one's really gotten to that kind of golden milestone of actually having the business processes fully entrenched, fully embedded, and actually um, almost automated in terms of getting to the optimal position. Um, it's a position that we think uh, we'll see people getting to um, probably in sort of a year or two's time the first of the kind of leading insurers might actually start getting to that point but the bulk of the industry will take a number of years and as always is the case there will always be certain companies that never really get to that point Okay, so in terms of that distribution of where companies are um, the the way we've looked at it is that in attaining that position or getting to the point where you really are optimized there is more or less a in our mind at least sort of a three year kind of tiered um, evolution of maturity we've called it here stages of maturity but really it's it's an evolutionary journey and you kind of find yourselves straddling one or more of these in in getting to that point where things operate as they should in terms of the first one it's really getting the basics right okay Um, Since we're focusing on standard formula and regulatory capital, these things mean nothing if you can't get the basics right. If you cannot get your SCR numbers right, if you cannot get the data and the information into that calculation correct, um, you've got nothing to work with. The process is already dead at that point. Um, The idea is also to remove those unnecessary errors, those unnecessary inefficiencies in the formula. I mean, we see so many insurers making common mistakes, interpreting things Um, the wrong way and actually not getting the right numbers out of the the Pillar 1 exercise in the first instance. Um, I'm going to ask Carl to take over in a minute and then he's going to share some examples, some practical examples of what we've seen in that particular space. The next pillar or the next sort of phase of maturity there is really then getting yourself to the point where you've actually embedded um, sort of risk-based measures or metrics that actually articulate the risk and the return things like economic capital, um, you know, things like return on ECR, actually simple measures but things that actually add value when you start putting them into place. And on the basis of that, you can start putting in some really simple processes to optimize potentially uh, basic decisions like asset allocations and reinsurance optimization. And then, obviously, finally, when you want to get to the true point of capital optimization, you're going to need to get to that point where you have an economic view of it. You've got a granular representation of the capital that actually represents your business. Um, You know, uh, as Janaid and Jean-Francois said earlier, maybe using things like USPs, maybe using partial or internal models to get a proper model um, in place for your business that represents you in all aspects where the standard formula perhaps doesn't. Uh, But this is not a pillar we're going to explore in detail today. In fact, we are going to focus on the first two, um, and I'm going to hand over to Carl to take us through some basic examples. Uh, Just to quickly mention also that a lot of the content is fairly technical. We might not be able to get through all of it today. Um, A lot of the research was done by Timothy Harrison, who is here today. So if you find there's something overly complicated, technical, or you think the six decimal is wrong. Uh, please stop him in the corridor and quiz him vigorously.
2: Um, Thank you very Uh, very much for that setup, Yaku. Um, uh, What we're going to be talking about is a bit technical uh, but the reason I'm standing here is I'm hoping I can figure out how to use a a pointer on the screen because I like to reduce the the complicated stuff to pictures. It's easier for me to to try and explain um, using pictures. Okay, just maybe also something to mention here. I mean, this is obviously our view um, around uh, just some of the stages of maturity. I know there are a lot of companies that, that have jumped into uh, stage three, but it, what it really comes down to, and we'll we'll touch on it during our talk as well, is your, also your view of how closely your risk that you face, is that similar to the industry um, to which the, obviously the ACR, the standard formula is calibrated, or is it fairly unique? Because I think... Obviously, if if it is vastly different, then you might not be taking the uh, this sort of this approach. Um, so to delve quickly into just a few little corrections, I mean, uh, we we see quite a lot of uh, quiz type and uh, comprehensive calculations come come our way. So I thought we would just highlight a few of the obvious ones um, that that stood out. And obviously this sometimes still comes through even on sort of a quiz 3 slash CPR third, fourth iteration. Um, But some really uh, easy ones to to watch out for. And and bearing in mind these quick fixes to to your SER calculation um, can obviously go both ways. So it it might improve it a lot or it might make it a lot worse depending on, on the extent to which you made the error. But um, quite an easy one is if, if mines weren't really applied in, in filling out of the, the natural catastrophe exposure information, when a particular product is not actually exposed to, to that peril, even though it might be a motor product, for example, and it's not actually exposed to hail, uh, then you, you could actually exclude that from your, your exposure measure there. Um, another one is concentration risk. This is uh, something I'm, I'm going to get into the, the the market risk one a bit later, but I'm not sure if, if everybody is not that com- comfortable around this. We prefer to delve or stay more in the domain of the non-life underwriting risk arena. But um, there are some easy ones to, to look out for here. So the one is netting to the same counterparty. Obviously you need to uh, to, to trade carefully when, when looking at this one. Uh, I mean, preferably it would be ideal to have some kind of formal agreement where you have multiple exposures with the same counterparty that allows you to, to offset those in, under a, s- a stressed event. Um, but that's definitely something that can do. That obviously changes the uh, counterparty risk calculation, uh, the concentration risk calculation to an extent. And then. Quite interestingly, sometimes the, uh, not all assets are included in the concentration risk calculation for one or another reason. So that's one that to watch out for because it could give you uh, quite the opposite result that you were looking for. Easy inconsistencies to spot uh, if you're writing a 100 million rand premium and you've, although you might be reinsuring most of it, um, so you're not really seeing it in the net SER figure. If you come up with a gross cat exposure of 600 billion. You've probably ignored a few zeros somewhere. You've forgotten that the sheet is supposed to be populated in um, thousands. Um, So I suppose those spot checks, those will come over time um, as you embed potentially a control function or you have a separate pair of eyes look over those. Um, Then I suppose one Factor or outflow of the current regulatory change environment where there 's just so much going on and you 're trying to find the most efficient ways of doing things is in the cases where you 're using the non life underwriting workbook to to perform the calculations now obviously it, it provides this, the basis and the template but um, you know in, in the automation of these things, sometimes things go wrong, so where you I think most insurers actually have a spreadsheet which populates the spreadsheet of the non-life underwriting risk, or potentially has multiple spreadsheets that populate the non-life underwriting risk spreadsheet, and uh, dragging of formulas can often inc- uh, include zeros in spaces that shouldn't have zeros. So, for example, if you include a zero on the non-life underwriting workbook for a potential reinsurance mitigation measure, uh, or m- mitigation column, it actually f- starts factoring that um, Reinsurance contract in, although it has zero, and the entire column might not be populated. If you populate it with zeros, it's going to feature in the calculation. That be- happens because of minimums and maximums starting to get triggered once you, once you actually fill in a number. And then lastly, the deferred tax adjustment. There's Lots to be said on this one. Um, I think there's various opinions about uh, its relevance and how to include it, or whether they, you want to include it. But I think we've found a few people where or a few insurers where this adjustment is perhaps not fully understood um, and it might be excluded just because they're not exactly sure how that works. So th- that is potentially an an easy one to, to look out for, to try and and um, delve into a bit and, and sort out. But what I really wanted to to get to is sort of those those are sort of the quick quick wins. Um what I wanted to get into is, is the counterparty default risk uh, component. Now, fortunately today, we've had uh, quite a few present, well, it looks like we're going to have at least two, possibly three, um, component- well, presentations that cover the other components. So I think this is, uh, this is a, a quite a good um, place to, to look at one component that often doesn't feature quite as significantly on well, insurers that retain a lot of their risks. But what we have found is that there are actually quite a few insurers that reinsure quite a substantial portion of of the the premium that they write, and when you actually look at um, the SER numbers coming out, it's not quite what you expected when you read the FSB's summary uh, summary of the impact of SAM on the entire um, industry. So, why CDR? It's obviously one of the less focused on ones. But ultimately, once everybody spent their time on non-life underwriting risk and optimized that, this, it's kind of the next uh, uh, logical step. Out of interest, just of everybody here, how how many people, if you can maybe just raise your hand, how many people were involved in the calibration of either the counterparty default risk or the concentration risk calculation for SAM? Okay, so we've got two. Great. So I'm sure you'll have questions. But I think what's, what's interesting is that uh, of, of the entire room, it's obviously not something that, that's been very high on the, on the priority um, list. So I thought it might be a good opportunity to explore some of the, uh, the, the components of it. And without going into too much detail, the standard formula um, uses a simplification, a three times sigma or three times standard deviation type uh, simplification, which is obviously quite familiar for most people and works quite nicely in a normal or, or log normal type of situation. Um, but something to keep in the back of your mind when you're looking at this is that the, the theoretical distribution used for credit risk um, is actually not so normal and if you look at three sigma, you will find that it is very, very prudent for the calculation. Again, not such a big story or relevant thing if you're not reinsuring much and you, uh, you're not that exposed to a lot of uh, credit risk. But I just want to pl- plant that thought there. The second one is obviously PD and LGD. Those are quite important inputs in the, into the calculation. Um, but do any of you know about the gamma parameter that's in the calculation? Obviously not something that you can play around with or change if you're filling in the standard formula. But um, I'll get back to that, that one as we go along. So I thought a quick intro or a, a quick one just to get out of the way. So I think everybody knows that excluding even the concentration risk calculation, there is a bit of a diversification benefit that comes through in the counterparty default risk calculation with the usage of more counterparties. So if you want to decrease your credit risk charge, what you can do is obviously find better rated uh, reinsurers or or counterparties, which is difficult if you've got a, a sovereign ceiling. Um, or you can find, or you need to diversify more. So uh, increase your exposure to more more counterparties. Um, and just sort of around the triple B level, you're looking at something like, like a say a nine to ten percent relative reduction if you increase the number of counterparties from four to eight. Obviously, this is a bit of a simplified example, but I'm just trying to illustrate, without going through the mathematics of everything, just some some of the actual uh, working components. Um, okay, I'm not sure if that's actually visible on the screen. Okay, no, it's, it's for later. Okay, so just um, I've obviously mentioned the, the benefit that you can get around the triple B range, which is relevant for most, uh, most insurers. So then, if, if you quickly look at uh, just expanding that, that graph, so it's effectively exactly the same as the previous one, where we're just looking at the, the relative credit risk charge. Um, across the number of counterparties and, and uh, credit rating. Now, a lot can be said around here, but what is interesting to notice is how sort of flat this bottom part is um, if you are exposed to pretty much everything above A. So, when I assume when the calibrations were originally done in Europe, um, where a lot of their counterparties are obviously a lot better rated than some of ours, I think. Having a conservative three sigma factor applied probably doesn't have such a significant impact. But obviously, when you move through the triple Bs or down the triple Bs and, and and up this end, the impact does become quite a bit more significant. So this got us thinking: so what's really causing causing this sort of uh, as you go through the lower credit ratings and, and um, lower number of counterparties, what what really causes that shape to go up? And come, uh, this is where uh, the gamma parameter starts uh, comes to play. So when we did some digging around the gamma parameter, and and um, I'm happy for if anybody has some more insight into the, the process, because obviously that's something that we've also come to realise now that we haven't been really that uh, as uh, sort of our team and between our clients haven't been that close to the calibration is that the gamma parameter is, is fixed at 25% of the tech, technical specification. And to go and find where that camp parameter is com- comes from, is, you, you need to go to the sales quiz 5 calibration paper. And what's interesting is that it, it seems to be based on a, uh, a judgment, an expert opinion. So, again, if, if you are retaining 100% of your risk or, or, or um, it's, it's probably not such a big train smash for you, but um, hopefully you can so, sort of see where, where I'm going with the story. So what does this parameter actually do? I'm hoping you can see um, where my pointer is. We're kind of halfway, just above the word gamma, um, is is where the, the, the parameter currently sits. And you can see the way it, it picks up as you go to lower credit ratings. Now, it's it's obviously not the worst value for the parameter to use, but... It's obviously. I mean, we we've stopped it at two, but it, it, it could be better. What is the, the right point? That's a good question. And depending on how significant this component is in your ACR, it might be a question you need to be asking yourself if you're doing your also, or if you are looking at the credit risk component and saying, well, is this credit risk component really relevant for me? Um, I suppose it's also could potentially be a challenge for, for someone, even maybe a, a rating agency, because I, I suppose if Europe didn't have enough data to calibrate this parameter, then it's probably going to be quite difficult to calibrate it here. Again, expert judgment coming to fore, it's going to be tough to challenge the FSB or the FSB then in that fact to challenge you around, why did you deviate from this? So moving on to um, another component, we didn't really get much into the return component there, that's just actually looking, looking at the SER. So we wanted to start looking at, at return as well as part of the, the optimization process. And we've again come up with quite a simplified um, model in this case, or a simplified representation. Where most insurers today obviously not really that interested in getting um, significant yields on their asset portfolio, and they really want to minimise the, the liquidity issue. So what they do is they, most guys probably end up spend, putting most of their um, surplus cash in uh, in banks. So we thought, okay, well, let's look at this. And um, what you're seeing here is a, a representation of the big four banks on the risk return space. Now, what you would normally sort of expect on a risk return space is as your, as your return... Um, increases your your relative risk measure or rating against that would increase, which kind of sort of happens for the bottom three um, banks here and then there is a particular outlier that that happens to show here at the top and what we've drawn in is is sort of the upper half of a, a efficient frontier which is effectively just a combination of so if you weren't to put all your cash, so each one of these points represents putting all your cash at that single bank. So if you were to put your cash in a combination of these banks, then, then you would kind of follow down this line. So a few interesting observations, obviously, is that you would think credit rating determines to an extent the return, which it doesn't always. Obviously, this, is, this was one set of uh, quotes on a day, but it's, it's worth uh, keeping in mind um, that it could potentially change over time. Um, and then another interesting observation is sort of what, what really is the best portfolio here? Well, we know it's somewhere along the line here, but I suppose if you don't have, if you're trying to minimize capital requirement, you, you're going to choose something around the turning point here. Or if you're going for maximum return, it's, it's sort of at this point. But it's, it's not really that obvious and you, you need something more before you can make that decision. So to make this even maybe a bit more interesting is we, we thought, OK, but oh, well, before I go on, just uh, if, if you were wondering what the reason is for the, the drop, it's, it's pro- predominantly the, the um, concentration risk uh, calculation that, that gives you a diversification benefit there. But to, to make it a bit more interesting, I thought, let's, well, let's include um, some of the second tier banks, not often included in the portfolio. And what you're seeing here at the bottom is this is the big four banks I was talking about with the original risk frontier, efficient frontier, and here we have two second-tier banks with the new efficient frontier if you were to include them in the mix. it's obviously a lot better, um, but again, where where is your most optimal portfolio? Do you, is it minimum capital? Is it um, maximum return for your your best-rated bank or is it just maximum return? And then lastly, although I suppose this is a bit more of a theoretical exercise because banks don't typically like using bonds, um, we did include a, a Gavi a GOVI index. Why we ended up deciding to uh, include this in the end is that there are actually, so what, what you're looking at here and why the return actually looks, it looks fairly favorable at the level of capital required is obviously government-based in, um, instruments don't attract, attract a credit and, and counterparty risk uh, charge. And, and concentration risk charge. So it got us thinking, well, if there might potentially be some interest, uh, interesting instruments out there which, as underlying, have government bonds. So you would need to think about the extent to which that would attra- attract credit and uh, concentration risk. But the point of my story here is really, w- when you're looking at different sets of asset combinations here, you're not really, it's not really standing out what is necessarily the most optimal um, portfolio. So if you consider including the cost of capital, so effectively looking at a more economic view, the picture changes slightly. What you, so in theory, from an economic profit point of view, obviously the highest economic profit, if you have specified your, your um, return on capital correctly, that should give you a better indication of what your optimal portfolio is. And in this case... You can see, depending depending on the assets which you are willing to to engage, include in your investment portfolio, there are obviously three clear sort of optimal points given the nature of your business. We've quite uh, deliberately not included an SCR uh, level at the bottom uh, for the bottom axis because obviously this is for an assumed balance sheet, certain composition, certain number of counterparties, and that would differ. But I think the the general picture is is what we, we are trying to. To communicate here, and obviously using a bond portfolio um, to back your your um, liabilities is not necessarily ideal if it's mostly uh, short dated. So then you start looking at um, liquidity um, issues. So lastly, I'd like to finish off with uh, probably a more more familiar topic that that most people have have been or obviously doing for quite a while. And with Sam coming along, there's some um, small tweaks that we can start making to the process of reinsurance optimization. But just to also set the scene, I think uh, there's been a lot of thought around how things work under the interim measures and a lot of maybe potentially even businesses built around that and with that un- understanding still remaining fresh, I think, in a lot of executives' um, minds around how sort of reinsurance interacts with capital requirements with how I can run my business. So, the one, of course, is to, um, so are looking at um, uh, quota share or proportional reinsurance, where it's, it's quite a nice way. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you do uh, quota share, but one way potentially is to boost the amount of uh, business that you are able to write. So, we'll be looking at that. We're also going to be looking at a, at a non prop example. So, firstly, looking at that, the idea around boosting the volume. Of business that you're writing by so if you don't have enough capital that's okay you can take out quota share insurance and which means you can write a lot more gross uh, business under interim measures if you take the SCR as a percentage of your net written premium I mean you you could guess quite easily what that would be um, there's some small fluctuation early on in the session rates because of the operas charge but it's I mean you could guess it's pretty much the the, the charge for that specific um, line of business Obviously, the picture under Sam is drastically different. It mirrors it to an extent, but once you sort of go beyond the, the even the 50%, but beyond 75%, the picture changes dramatically. And it's interesting because it doesn't seem like, we, we all know that you should be charged more for credit risk um, as, as you seed as you more. But I'm not sure if, if, if the pennies dropped that it increases that dramatically on the net acr once you um, increase uh, session levels to such an extent so we thought okay so what's really what's really driving this and and apologies for deviating from the template but i ran out of colors that were clear Um, uh, but in this case obviously non-life underwriting risk dips as you would expect uh, because you're seeding away some of that risk um, operational risk does something similar to intermeasures. it kind of levels off at a certain level at a certain point. Um, but then something interesting happens on the credit, counterparty default risk, and and, and, and and concentration risk. As you go beyond a certain point, that it picks up rather dramatically. And again, it's not going to be relevant for a large group of insurers that don't write a lot of reinsurance, or that that retain a lot of business. But for those that don't retain a lot of business, this is quite a cause of concern, especially if you know that the credit risk calibration is actually quite prudent because at the levels that you're dealing with here, it does then all sort of start to stack up against you. but just sort of a side comment. It is interesting here that you're effectively trading the credit risk that you uh, have against your bank. So the cash balances in your bank, you're trading that as you move through the session levels um, for credit risk against the reinsurers, um, sort of the, the reinsurance assets and the default risk on um, reinsurance impacts. All right. And then to settle sort of the, the, the comment around writing, writing quota share gives you access to more volume. Um, what we try to sort of picture here is this: the diagonal line running bottom left to top right is sort of a representation of what interim measures would give you in terms of a volume boost. So if you were to seed uh, 90% of your business, you would get about 9 to 10 times more volume that you would be able to to get. Um, if you move to the SAM picture, that number actually changes quite dramatically. And we. Under Sam, you would probably only be able to, on a ninety percent session, get about five times of the volume on a gross basis uh, through your balance sheet or through your your income statement. So then, on to just the last quick example. So, um, and this particularly covers now non-prop insurance. There's always the the question around what is the optimal attachment point, and we thought that. we, we could illustrate that quite nicely with, with um, a little graph. So um, it, it's really just something I, I want to leave a thought in your minds uh, for for the rest of the day. Um, obviously, this is a process that a lot of people go through when they determine their, their attachment points. But potentially look at this as a way to graphically represent it, and, and you might want to consider um, looking at your your analysis in the future like this. So. Again, we bring in what I mentioned before. So it's not only a consideration of what minimises your capital requirement, and I'm sure it would, obviously there would be a consideration of what are the 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 cost, what would be the cost of the, of the reinsurance premium. But if you have a full, complete picture of um, your capital requirement and you've matched that with an expectation of the the, um, the knowledge of what it costs to actually fund that capital, then you can start coming up with. With pictures like these, so the top line there represents your total cost of mitigation as a function of the attachment point. So starting left, you um, you effectively give everything to the reinsurer. So zero or very low attachment point, moving all the way to the right. And what was interesting is obviously your your cost of capital is fairly linear in terms of the attachment point because your net SCR um, obviously reflects uh, that it. Quite closely, or it includes what your um, attachment would be, depending on how diversified your businesses, of course. And um, and then, obviously, in this picture, the minimum point there would be your your optimal attachment point. And I think this is something that that, given a few quotes, I mean, you obviously won't have the full range of pricing from the non-property insurers, but given a few quotes, that is something that that you should be able to. To estimate, as part of your uh, your reinsurance renewal process. So that's really all that we wanted to uh, to mention and share with you today. Um, If you have any further questions.